0: Welcome again to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. You may know Glenn Fleischman from a bunch of places, really. He has written for everyone from Wired to Fortune, Popular Science, The New York Times, PC World, and contributes regularly to The Economist, The Seattle Times, Macworld, etc. And also in the last few years, he was the publisher of The magazine that iPad publication that we spoke to Chris Higgins about in previous episodes. He also hosted a very popular podcast called The New Disruptors. But for a brief period of time in the 1990s, Glenn was also the catalog manager for Amazon.com right around the time of the site launch. Not only was Glenn able to give us the details on some of the early decisions and processes at Amazon, but he also goes into a frank assessment of Amazon's strategy, what the prospects for the company looked like at the time, and even Jeff Bezos himself. Special thanks to Chris Higgins for research and editorial on this episode. Continuing our Amazon series, here is Glenn Fleischman. Glenn Fleischman, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So I'd like to start with... um... I usually start with uh, degrees and, and colleges and things like that, and uh, you got a, a graphic design degree from Yale?
1: That's right. I'm, a, I'm an art major with a concentration in graphic design, because that's, of course, what you go to Yale for, is to get an art degree.
0: <laughs> well, I, 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 right, and, and I, I bring that up because I wanted to lead into, uh, I've been told that you, you like to tell people that you've been around so long, you still know how to typeset.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I, this is p- sort of both a joke. It's become a recurring thing because I forgot that I say it so often. Because it's, but I, uh, it's one of the last people trained formally as a typesetter. I think, like not last, like literally number you know million or whatever. But um, I got trained in uh, high school in 1984 or five to typeset. We were using um, optical digital optical typesetting equipment, which was pretty cool. It was this transition period just before uh, uh, the Mac came out. And desktop publishing started, and um, I typeset the paper. I got paid, in fact, in high school, which was awesome. And uh, but right around that time, there was sort of no reason. By about you know, by the mid '80s, no one was getting trained as a typesetter. I didn't get trained in lead, uh, in hot lead typesetting. But uh, but I was did that, and I worked on um, in summer jobs, and I worked at the printing service at uh, my college, and um, that's kind of how I made um, the money I needed to to go to college, or part of the money I needed to go to college. Was as a typesetter, so I always say that because it comes from its typesetting was a kind of programming on the uh, the optical digital systems used a version of code that was sort of like SGML, which is kind of the basis for HTML or similar right. evolution. So right. back in 1984, I was writing something like SGML. So when I saw HTML, I'm like, I know, I know what this is. I've been doing this for years already.
0: Well, and also, so you're saying that exactly in your schooling is is really the transition to digital publishing and, and digital design and that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, I started with this, you know, this crazy, it's also like this wonderful thing cuz optical digital typesetting had a rapidly spinning drum and you put a film strip on it with the negative space was the shape of letters and characters and it would expose a light at a precise interval to expose resin-coated resin-coated paper. And then you develop it like you're developing film. And it's a, a lithographic paper. It only exposed black and white. It just didn't have any shades of gray. And it's this crazy thing. Then you put wax on the back. You'd run it through a waxing machine. You'd cut it up. And that was what I did, you know, in 19... times was mostly typesetting, then moved into design. So 84, 85, 86. And then, you know, 86 comes along. And it's like, well, we don't need to do any of this. What, what are we doing all this crazy... <laughs> this crazy right. cutting for and then Linotype and others came out with image setters which um, you could set entire pages on from PageMaker and Quark and then suddenly and then you start printing onto film Directly uh, negative uh, lithographic film that gets used to make plates for printing, and you know, this is even before any kind of high volume printing, then we get print on demand, even by the late '80s from photocopy machines, and suddenly all the need for this analog stage doesn't entirely disappear, but it's mostly gone within a five year period, maybe four, where I had started in and then got my degree and then worked in the field a little bit.
0: Right, I went. I went to film school in the mid '90s, and they still insisted that we learn. Uh, to to splice film manually, so I at least learned how to do it, but then never actually applied it for anything meaningful. Hand
1: skills are great, though. I'm glad I got my hand skills, my graphic design courses. We were using ruling pens and we, we had to learn great – you get great hand-eye coordination. I used to be able to draw straight lines freehand. I used to be able to tell anything under 12 inches. I could tell you nearly maybe to the quarter inch what the distance was by looking at it. And that was a skill. It wasn't – is was a, a byproduct of doing all the layout, but that creates an enormously strong eye-hand connection. And I feel like even today I preserve that. When I look at things digitally, I have a palpable feel uh, associated with it. And for, I think it helps.
0: Right, for the real world, what it really is, and yeah. spatially even – um, so let's talk about the technical uh stuff. Like, um, I i had also heard that you were a, an early CompuServe guy, big on CompuServe.
1: Yeah, when I was 11 or so, they had a dial up thing where you could dial up in their off hours, or their regular hours were uh expensive and used for timeshare purposes. And their off hours they ran CB's Citizens Band, right? It was uh you could uh, do chat and you could do various kinds of little computing tasks and whatever. And I did that. And I ran up way too big a bill, which I think uh, Chris Higgins, uh, our mutual friend, uh, did as well. And uh, so that was short-lived. Couldn't afford to be on the service. It was ridiculously expensive. But, um, yeah, that was 1980 at a three hundred wow. 110 baud modem, 110 baud acoustically coupled modem at one point where you put the handset in and it, and it connects up. And I think at some point I got a 300 baud one. It was very exciting.
0: I know I know that they had the the CB program really early on, like literally that was one of the first chat applications. But what what else did they have in 1980? Were there message boards and things at that point still? Yeah, there
1: were there were message boards. There were some programs you could run. I think you could write. It wasn't. I don't know if they had a basic, but I remember being able to write a little bit of software. But it was expensive to run. They would charge you for compute time. So even in the off hours, you'd be like, this took you know 0. 0.0007 units, and it's a buck fifty or something. So and the dollar was strong still in 1979, despite inflation. So uh, 1980, <laughs> yeah. so it was real. It was real money back then. Uh, but it was mostly chatting forums and things like that, and and a little bit of other stuff.
0: So what about the the web? When did, do you remember the first time you ever um, encountered the web? Got on it? That sort of thing.
1: Oh yeah, it's actually a funny story. Is that I was working for a small book publisher, actually a book packager that did all their books for. Uh, it was so independent. Um, like almost like a imprint of a of a larger publisher, but it was completely independently run and owned and uh, called uh, open house and uh, all the books were done for peach pit press um, and uh which is now owned by pearson and um, the my boss was a super forward thinking person named Steve roth and he had this hilarious... He, he's telling me, databases, my son, databases are the future is what he was telling me in 93.
0: Like plastics, right? <laughs> exactly. It was <laughs> yeah.
1: perfect. 92, 93, he's like, databases, you need to work with databases. Like, oh, databases are boring. No, dad, I don't want to work with databases. And and he turned out to be totally right. Like, he, he understood that being able to... Manipulate and process large amounts of information would actually be a big chunk of what would happen in the future. And he'd, he did quite a lot with like FileMaker and things like that. And so one day, we're looking at MacWeek Magazine. I think it was February of 1993 is what I want to say because uh, I think that's right, March. And there's a tiny screen capture, maybe like one inch by two inch of this screen. And it's about, oh, the folks at NCSA have made this program called Mosaic, and uh, it lets you browse a graphical web, which is something that uh, they were working on in Switzerland or something like that. And it was, this, it was a little vague, but it was, I remember like a little third of a page article. We got Mac Week was this thing, you know, you get it. Everybody who got it was delighted because it was uh, a weekly publication about the Mac. It was circulation audited, so you had to qualify or pay hundreds of dollars a year if you didn't qualify for their demographics. And uh, we looked at this thing, and Steve, uh, I don't think I saw the potential immediately. I think he said, oh, that's the future. That's it. Like, that's what wins. And, and I don't remember his exact words, but he really was like, yeah, that's where everything's going to go because graphical interaction and blah, blah, blah. And, he, you know, I was like, well, I don't know, the infrastructure. I, I think by then I had an Internet account. I had um, Internet access in college uh, at ARPANET access in a class, and I had BitNet and some other Internet-connected precursor network access. And I was on the well in, I think it was 89 to 91 because they had a gateway to Internet email um, but I also participated not heavily in the well community and then as soon as I could I got a real dial up account with um you know on an internet provider uh, in the early nineties. And so, you know, I saw this thing, I'm like, Wow, the network's pretty slow and I don't know, do you think they'll actually be able to move graphics? Seems like a long time and, and you know, sure enough that was it. But uh the so the funny part is that was early spring, maybe February or March. I think March of ninety three and by June I'd started a web development company. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right uh so so because you you you're you're like well this html is sort of what I've already been I understand that and and when you see the web taking off so that's why you're like all right I'll jump right on board right
1: yeah, I started messing around with it. Well, I think the Mac version of Mosaic or some Mac port came out shortly after, because that was the X Windows version. Right, the, was the first the, one. Yeah, yeah, Unix based or whatever. I guess it was probably BSD. I don't know. Some one of the Unix flavors uh, had X windowing system as a graphical, you know, really crummy but gr- you know, GUI for uh, for Unix, and um, that's what we saw in Mac Week. And then they came out with the the Mac version that was super primitive, but it worked. And I uh my boss was out of town for a month he went to france for a month and um you know i think i had a relatively light amount of stuff on my plate and peach pit press was curious about it so they flew me down from seattle to berkeley and i showed them i'd mocked up like what a website could look like and they were just completely fascinated and they were interested in actually paying money to have something like that um created and they had i don't know like an isdn line at the office they were zooming along at high speeds, you know, 56K or whatever, 64K. So uh, that led to a few things. I had a fellow I'd worked with uh, at the Codex Center for Creative Imaging. He was an intern, a computer science uh, student and a programmer. And he and I, he was thinking about what he was going to do after college. And he and I talked, and we decided to start this company with essentially no money, some credit cards. And uh, his uh, father owned a printing company and had different clients. One of them was Faucet Outlet and they were interested in getting in early. Uh, Pete's Press signed on, and um, his uncle, my friend Todd's uncle, owned well, at the time was the owner of Atlas Model Railroad Company. So we oh. had three clients, and I want to say they were each paying us $5,000 a month. And that was enough to sort of get him out and feed and clothe us and, and pay the debt and get a T1 line and get some office space, and, and it was nuts. So we we started, and within a few months we had some of the first commercial websites on the internet in um, wait, am I saying ninety three? I think it was ninety three, probably. Well, no, it was ninety four. Ninety four. It was ninety four because ninety three is when I moved to Seattle. So ninety four, uh, by June ninety four, I started the company, and I think by August or September, because the NSF, the National Science Foundation, mm-hmm. had, had made a change in the rules. Mm-hmm. They were uh, getting out of the internet backbone business, but as long as they were in place, you couldn't, you technically couldn't do commercial stuff, even right, though people right. were. And I think it was that spring, somewhere around then, they opened up the floodgates and said, you know, basically all the commercial restrictions are off, um, but you still have to find a provider to connect to. And at the same time, in Seattle, several companies were starting up. Some existed, like UUNet, that had service all over the place, and they wanted $6,000 a month for a 1.5 megabit per second T1 line. Uh, and we found a company that was a startup. They figured out how to do everything much cheaper, and they were $1,500 a month. So <laughs> That's how we were able to go into business. If those guys hadn't started, we would not have been able to afford um, the service for you know another year, probably. I know,
0: I know you mentioned it, uh, but we sort of glid, glided right past it, and I and I don't want to. So who were who were your early clients that that are coming to you and saying, "Hey, we need a, a web presence in 1994."
1: Well, this is so so it was all sort of friends and family, right? So mm-hmm. Atlas was Todd's. So Todd was my partner, Todd Hadrick, and Todd Hadrick. You can find him quoted that fall in the netscape 1.0 press release because we were so important as a tiny tiny company with no almost no revenue in seattle todd is quoted as a principal at point of presence company uh in the release for netscape 1.0 and i'd love i love that uh so uh so todd's uncle uh atlas model railroad he had a lot of really geeky people buying railroad model railroad stuff so the internet was a perfect fit even that early he figured he'd you know stake some ground Peachpit Press published computer books, and they knew they had an audience that was geeky enough, was already even asking about internet purchasing right, sure. was via email. Uh, and some people, you know, at that time, people were selling stuff via email. You'd send a credit card number, and you'd buy things. Um, Powell's Books uh, had a Telnet based purchasing system. Their technical bookstore in I want to say ninety three, maybe ninety four, you could log in via Telnet and buy books. Um, and, uh, the so our third client was Fawcett outlet, which was one of Todd's father's printing businesses, clients. And that eventually led to something else as well that we were involved in. But they, uh, they thought there'd be again, an audience of people like sort of professional techie enough that they would want to, uh, that they would figure out how to use this thing. And they, again, they wanted to be ahead of the curve. They had a catalog. It wasn't very much money relative to their revenue. And they were just interested in experimenting Uh, with it because they thought it might go somewhere
0: and you guys didn't there weren't any um design clients at that time right you guys are basically just hand coding everything you're doing right
1: yeah we did the design sometimes the sites would or the clients would produce um you know graphics and things or sometimes we would i I, both of us had enough of a design background we could create things and everything was pretty primitive And we're trying to compress gifs as small as possible uh and um you know use the fewest number of colors in a gif to make it as tiny as possible and uh, that became more difficult because uh not well, I think after a few months in business we signed up photodisc which was a royalty free cd rom based uh, licensing group that was nearby us in downtown seattle and um the we we got office space in downtown seattle about 8 months 7 months after we started i think about march of 1990 I think it was. And uh, what was hilarious is while we're signing the lease, they wanted to, the landlord wanted to give us a five year lease and they were going to give us two months of rent abatement, which is, you know, just sort of this sugar to sign a longer lease. Mm-hmm. Before we signed, they said, oh, I actually want to sign a three year lease and we'll give you four months. We're like, four months free rent. We love that. That sounds great. But the reason was the real estate market was just about to heat up. So we had. Uh, class a office space in a terrific spot in downtown uh, you know not a huge amount of space and um and eventually another company uh like uh that became all recipes emerged out of our space too because we uh, we sublet to some other people and film.com which got acquired by real networks mm-hmm. also we we incubated in our space as it were um and so the but the uh it was just we were right on the verge of Seattle starting to explode. Uh and the real estate company that owned these buildings <laughs> understood that and sure enough, within three years, like every bit of downtown space was essentially full and they were able to charge much higher lease. They didn't want to be committed to a uh to a long lease. So we were downtown and we started picking up clients. Pacific Coast Feather Company was another early client, I think we had by early ninety five and um the, that's the Hanauer family in Seattle, and Nick Hanauer, you may know the name. Nick was one of the people who then went on to help Jeff Bezos raise the first million dollars for Amazon.com, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Nick is now some kind of billionaire who writes about um, why he should be taxed more, mm-hmm. because and uh, and how he's not a job creator. He's a very funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> so that was all going on. I can't remember all of our early clients, but Pacific Coast Feather was. They were a big local company. Photodisc was a nice, sizable. A very successful local company, and they needed many more images. So we had to, you know, deal with, and we needed some database stuff written. We started to get uh, go down that path.
0: And how many years did uh, Point of Presence uh, run for?
1: Well, it's tricky. I like I say I founded it. In, I want to say it was ninety four. That's right, summer mm. of ninety four, and I left for Amazon. and I sold it and left. Uh, so Todd had gone off. Before that point, he was still. I bought him out and he wanted to go to work. He, he was from the East Coast. He decided to move back after a year. And he went to work for Fawcett Outlet's sort of parent company, which um, they built this thing called Build.com, which was like a, a set of different uh, building related things run by the same value in Fawcett Outlet. I don't, I don't know where, where that went, actually. I've forgotten. But so he worked for them for a while and then went into other um, e commerce and uh, e commerce stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so I owned the company and was paying part of Todd out over time, and then I sold it to a friend of mine who was a pretty technical guy looking for something new. And uh, he ran it sort of funny because he ran it for years, and it sort of petered out because he wound up eventually – the The market became, you know, when you go from being able to charge $5,000 a month to, you know, $100 a month, it's, the, it's a mugs business. You mm-hmm. have to be a different operation. So he did well with what he did, and, and he ran clients, got some new ones, and then at some point he realized it was a part-time thing, and he needed a full-time job, and um, all recipes at that point had been growing and growing and I think he had some space with them. They eventually became a fairly enormous company and got acquired by the Reader's Digest uh, company and then sort of reverse merged. Um, Reader's Digest fell on hard times and the the CEO of All Recipes, as I understand it, wound up being, I think becoming the chief executive of Reader's Digest's, uh after that. So they had this kind of interesting arc and they're still located in Seattle, but um, but they we gave them some space and bandwidth and so forth and they got bigger popco got smaller and Scotty who I sold it to, I don't, he didn't technically shut it down, but I think he sort of petered the clients out maybe into the gosh, I'm sort of forgetting maybe the early two thousands. He was still running some stuff for people, but I think he was basically full time. He went to work for all recipes uh, and then for other, some um, other more uh, uh, technical it companies after that. But um I think it was I think it only had a lifetime, maybe five or six years when it had active clients. Something like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well then let's let's transition to Amazon then. Um it, did you participate in the in the Amazon beta test? Yeah,
1: I was a early customer. In fact, I don't know if I still have them. I have some receipts of books that were like hand packed by Jeff Bezos. And uh the deal was I had a roommate well, I was renting a house in Seattle which I now own. I was renting part of a house, and uh, the guy who owned the house was a grad student in computer science, and his parents had co-signed on the house, so he could not, basically, they'd keep it while he was here, then sell it. And so, he essentially, and that's exactly what happened. He basically lived here for rent-free Rent free by the time he sold it, uh, because the house had appreciated it. And uh, he had a buddy, I'd go to some computer science parties with him, and he had this buddy named Paul, Paul Bhutan. if you ever find, uh, not Paul Boutin, I'm telling you the wrong name, Paul, sorry, it's Paul Barton Davies, Paul Bhutan was a wire digger, sorry. So, Paul Barton Davies, uh... Was right. Yes. Oh, yeah. So he comes up in the accounts, right? So Paul met him at a party, and Paul says, "Oh, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of the program because the PhD program, because I'm gonna work for this guy named Jeff, and he's got this. We're gonna put, um, we're gonna put." Our employees inside of book distributor warehouses, and they're going to ship books from in there. So people will place orders, and I'm like, oh, that's never going to work. Because at this point, I knew about book distributors. Having worked at a publisher, I knew some of the details of the book industry. Mm. I'm like, the book distributor, they are not – no, no, you're competing against them. They have channel conflicts. It's not going to work. And then so some point not long after that, I don't even know if Jeff has in Seattle yet – I met up with Jeff through other mutual friends. We had lunch and hit it off and, and I gave him advice. I know it's crazy. And he's a smart guy and he knew what he was gonna do. But I had an internet company that was uh, a year old at that point, I think. Was it that long? It was something like that. But uh I mean not that quite we coincided at some point, but I was already running a company and he was building one, so it was sort of hilarious. And so we would meet from time mm-hmm. to time and have lunch and chat about stuff and and, um, and immediately, like, after Paul had told me what their model was, Jeff's like, oh, no, we can't do that. Yeah, we're not going to do it. We're going to build a warehouse. We're going to start small. We can do some drop shipping where they'll ship on behalf. And then as we grow, you know, and whatever. And I was like, oh, well, that makes more sense. And um, I got some early interviews with them when I was writing. So uh, even before I was there, I wrote an InfoWorld feature about um, database access to, you know, the, the database thing again. And, uh, and Jeff was willing to talk to me. now I'm interviewing the CEO of Amazon and it's like I say, ninety five or early ninety six for an article about the technical underpinnings of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and at some point, I was getting dissatisfied with my little boutique business. Um, I uh, felt like it wasn't. I knew I could grow it, but I felt like I needed outside capital. I really wasn't secure. I was already working too hard. I wasn't secure in raising money, giving up control, going through that whole route. And then I wasn't confident about. I actually thought prices were going to collapse, or a lot of people who were well-funded at that point, uh, you know, 95, 96 period, where they were working for free. You know, they would go to a a major company and say, we'll build a site for you for free because we're trying to build whatever. And the company would say, great, that sounds terrific. We like free. And you can't compete against free. So it was sort of dispiriting. And um, so we had a, you know, we brought up new clients with less money. I had an employee for a bit. um, And we sort of hit a point where I thought, you know, this is not what I want to be spending my time doing. I need to get out of this, and um, I'd explored a merger with a design company, and that hadn't worked out. We decided we were to there was a sort of a programming small programming company uh, this design firm and I we'd spent some time talking about it and realized we just weren't the right fit for where the design company was probably the most robust and um, they didn't want to do it so uh, so Jeff, I'm out to lunch with Jeff and Jeff said, you know if you ever want to come work for me I'd hire you in a second. I'm like, oh. I want to come work for you. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. I bet I can work that out. He's like, "Oh, great! Well, come on over and interview." So I interviewed with several different people, including his wife Mackenzie, who was deeply involved in kind of helping the stuff get set up in the early days, and um, and they hired me. And, and uh, that's they... and I got the business. I got the business transition, and Scotty took it over, and I got in that and uh, moved on from there.
0: Well, and and they hired you to do what exactly?
1: Well, it was interesting, and I can tell you this now. Like it would, like it was a while. I couldn't talk about it because uh, like, years literally, because they didn't launch the program. But uh, so Scott Lipsky, who went on to, um, he was at that point, I want to say the vice president of business development. Was it vice president or something? Not vice president. He was the director of business development. He, you know, he was a high level, maybe a VP. He was a high level person. He reported to Jeff there was not that much management infrastructure. There were 104 people when I joined. I think I was employee 105. We were all in the um, the charming heroin uh, district of Seattle <laughs> right. across from the Methadone Clinic uh, in the Columbia building, or not the Columbia building it was called. It was not Columbia Tower, but I think it was literally the Columbia building and uh, had one floor and expanded to two while I was there of this crummy, crummy old building. And uh, so Scott Lipsky uh, later went on to be one of the founders of Avenue A, which Nick Hanauer was one of the founders of. And then Scott so that got sold to microsoft for i think 7 billion right Ad- advertising
0: so, yeah. advertising stuff yes yeah.
1: exactly right so scott has a serial um startup well-placed person he wound up staying about exactly a year so he'd started a few months before i did and they're hiring vps like crazy and uh i he, uh, so they were like he's like look there's two jobs one job is catalog manager and you're going to deal with like all of the information we have to associate with books and work with sources and data sources and improve that and work with this team and have a team of people who are entering you know scanning book covers and whatever and the other is this thing that we haven't launched yet that is um i think they eventually called it amazon advantage but it was we're going to resell books directly for smaller publishers like we're going to stock them and warehouse them and sell them on their behalf and you're going to recruit people and whatever that program didn't start i think for four or five years Mm -hmm. i want to say so i'm glad i didn't pick that one because i don't i would have had to do something else uh and um so I came in as catalog manager, and I don't—I was sort of replaced, but not. And the idea was that uh, even for a company that small, they were highly siloed. So there was an editorial operation, warehouse, special orders—you um, know, there's sort of the programming people dealing with the orders, and different people own different pieces of things. And my job was. I don't think it was formed this way, but I made it my job, which was to work with everybody to get all the information sort of in accord. So when you looked at a book page, I didn't exactly own the page, but I sort of did. So I wasn't setting pricing information, uh, but I was pulling in source information about it. And um, uh, I worked out while I was there, my biggest accomplishment was that I uh, during a snowstorm <laughs> that year, a snowstorm '96. Mm-hmm. I we, literally the town was shut down for like a week and a half. Couldn't get into the office, and I spent three weeks in that period programming something that would take the limited set of data we had about each book, like reviews and so forth, and it built an association, which is now a commonplace thing, between works with different ISBNs so essentially would lump things together like all the Wizard of Oz's would be recognized that they were all the same work or close to the same work and if we had a piece of data about one we could cross link it to another It all sounds very trivial today it was all incredibly difficult to do then because of the, the lack of computation power even with what we were doing so we went from having information on you know 100,000 pages to like 600,000 pages and every bit of information you had helped increase sales and um so that was one of my main things. But I was basically working with data sources. I was working with uh, Baker and Taylor, Ingram, and ultimately other companies who were creating, you know, had huge uh, constantly updated feeds of bibliographic information and working to try to, to get that and then integrate that into what we did and accumulate more kinds of information about each book so that we could present a richer page. And that was my job.
0: So uh, when you – back to what you were just describing about um you know tying together related materials like all, all of the wizard of oz stuff is that sort of like laying the groundwork for you know what could be used for the recommendation engine later on and stuff like that
1: well no it's funny that was kind of a separate thing the recommendation engine i was still there when they licensed it from a company's name i forget and uh the performance was terrible in the early days and i never thought by the time i left they still hadn't gotten it working um, well enough. It just took forever. But that was an entirely different – I think they licensed it out of a, as acad- academia. These guys had spun off a company. So it was an entirely different effort. I, I don't um,
0: remember off the top of my head, but Shell remembered. So it's, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. Uh,
1: because there was, at that point – I mean, so I'll tell you. So here's the big problem with Amazon um, when I was there. The big problem was uh, they needed more programmers, and they couldn't hire them. And it wasn't a salary thing or a relocation thing. Amazon seemed like the most boring company in the world. Amazon seemed like okay, you're going to go work for healthcare when all sorts of more exciting things were happening. Um, there were you know people were writing software for the web, people were building applications for the desktop. There was all this stuff going on. And we'd say, "Look, you should come here and work." They're like, "Why?" Well, like we're not public yet, we can't guarantee anything. But this company could be big, and if so, you'll have stock, and you're a programmer, and you'll be working cutting-edge e-commerce technology. And they're like, "That doesn't sound very interesting at all." And so, recruiting was a terrible problem. So by the time I left, I want to say there were only twelve programmers at Amazon in mid. I left in May 1997. Oh. Maybe it was 12. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was 20 by then. It was very small. Um, and frankly, without naming names, the person who was assigned to my group was not uh, was not uh, the right person. Uh, she was not able to, I think, let uh, see, I don't want to, it's not, it's like, right, right. I'm not trying to put anybody down. It's more like her, what she wanted to do with her life and the amount of hours she wanted to work and even, personality-wise, how she dealt with stress, this was not the right place for her. And um, it was difficult. And she stayed, I think, a couple years You know, invested and then went off to, I remember reading a story where she said, I make a turkey every week. And I was like, that is awesome. That's what you should be doing because that is sort of accords with, how you can deal with life. <laughs> and um, But it meant that we really had a very difficult time getting anything done in my department because I could not get her to do almost anything, basically. And there wasn't anyone else to turn to, and I could not get somebody else in, and we couldn't hire programmers for core e-commerce stuff fast enough, and the systems were getting mired. And um, to my recollection, I think Shell insisted on programming everything in C, and it was hard to find C programmers, young C programmers at that point, because everyone had shifted... To C for objective, uh mm-hmm. Auditorium mm-hmm. programming. I remember. I may be wrong about that. I think it was all C, and so they were doing really incredible low-level stuff. That's the reason Amazon worked, is because they built their system, you know, p- one step above assembly is what it felt like, and that allowed them to optimize it like crazy. And Shell built Obidos, which is um, uh, named after a place in Brazil. And it's the core engine in the early days you'd see a URL like amazon.com/exec/ obidos and then a bunch of stuff after it and that system rewrote every page on the fly which was insane in those days and it rewrote it so that it could retain state before cookies Amazon could retain state by appending a unique tracking ID to every single URL on every page. And cookies made that a lot easier but without that system they couldn't have they couldn't have persisted uh, and I having built, a year before, uh, System for Peach Bit Press, um, I realized just how difficult it was. I think cookies had started, we had cookies by 96, but I think there were still issues about persistence and how people accepted them and a bunch of other stuff and browser compatibility. So Amazon's, like, Obidos was this brilliant thing. And it had to be written at a very, you know, in both a high-level language, like C is a high-level language, but also kind of close to the metal in that they had to optimize like crazy. And I, they might have been writing even assembly for some of what they did. But this meant it was difficult to find the programmers who were gung-ho about the future and were well-versed enough to actually do this stuff. And we had a very ponderous process. For a long time, Jeff Bezos interviewed everybody. And then eventually they got him not interviewing customer service people. But we were interviewing for uh, an administrative assistant for Scott, who was the VP, and Jeff called in from a plane, from a plane, to be part of our uh, hiring meeting which is an incredibly bad use of his time. And eventually, I think he got out of it. But he was the best kind of micromanager in that his decisions were often very good, but he was not focused in the right areas in those days. He was putting too much time into low-level stuff. And what we really needed is we needed like 30 programmers, and we had 10. After I left, they hired an entire consulting firm's worth of Oracle programmers, because Oracle was the database that those days... Uh, and I think it was like eight guys, and they hired like another ten people, so within a few months of when I left, I think they had thirty programmers, and everything changed. They were able to move forward uh, much more quickly, but that was one of the reasons I left is uh I felt like they could not actually pull off what they were gonna do, and every day felt worse and worse.
0: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bike clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking what's your secret?" That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Well, so I, I actually can completely understand um, that it would be hard if you're, you're saying to programmers, you know, the web is taking off. Hey, come over here. What do you do? All we do is sell books. Okay, well, I can, I can be inventing something entirely new over here. But so if, if there were only a handful of programmers and, you know, you join around uh, employee 120 or so, what, what are most of the people there doing at that point?
1: Uh, let's see. Well, the, uh, a bunch of people in the warehouse, of course. And, um, there was this thing, I feel comfortable saying it 20 years later, there's kind of a cronyism as one of the very early employees hired a bunch of people he had gone to college with. Some of them were good, some were not. And I mean, good in the sense of some people were like part of a team, worked well, could cope, could be professional. And some were just kind of, uh, not quite what they needed and eventually left or were pushed out. And, um, but it meant that, um, uh, that, that, had an impact on the early culture, and, I, and I'm, I'm sort of sorry for that. I think they didn't have a good hiring culture. They hired people they thought were really smart. They didn't have a process for dealing with people who didn't further the interests of the company as well as they should have. And I don't mean in a harsh way, like this person should be fired, but more like there was no system of correction for it. So anyway, that's sort of by the way. But uh, the special orders department was a big thing, oddly enough, because we could order any book that was carried by – um, Ingram or Baker and Taylor, uh, which I think are still the two largest book distributors in the country, we had electronic uh, connections to their system that were terrible, terrible systems. We were pushing them so hard, we were breaking things to their end. When I left, Amazon could not place orders, could actually not, f- not technically deliver orders into their system fast enough in a 24-hour period. So in 24 hours, they couldn't upload enough orders that affected the last 24 hours. They are falling behind um, because of the distributors systems uh, they were using old mainframes and this weird old systems and it was a dial-up thing it was nuts it was crazy uh, so uh, the staff was some chunk in the warehouse and I don't know the numbers so that was probably a big hunk by then there were um, a couple dozen people in special orders and special orders were we listed every book in print Through any source that we had access to, and it was originally 1.1 million. And part of my thing was to pull in rare, out of print, and other stuff. And I got us to 2.5 million before we before I left. And of the 1.1 million, only about I want to say 400,000 could be ordered through a major book distributor. So if you wanted to get a book from Springer Verlag, for instance, uh, or Springer Verlag in America, you'd have to um, call them. Typically, they didn't have an electronic ordering system. This is 96, 97. So you call them. So there was a room full of people who, when special orders came in, they would be, okay, you know, they'd develop it or fax it off and have to deal with the process. And Amazon's secret sauce that nobody ever got, and I have been saying this for 20 years, and Chris Anderson actually, I think he put some of this into um, the long tail. I think I'm quoted in there because uh, uh, I feel like it was missed. Is In its early years, I don't know, how how old are you? I don't know. Uh, 37. Okay, so yeah. you probably remember this. Do you remember having to special order books at Absolutely a 100% yeah. or CDs, yeah. sure, yeah. Yeah, if you were th- if you're 30, you probably wouldn't remember what that meant because you don't go into a bookstore. Right. You can still get special orders, but they're not called that anymore. They're like, "Oh yeah, we'll ship it from our warehouse." So, uh, the inflection point for Amazon is g- yes, yeah, so you're you're surely just old enough for a bit old enough to remember is um, pre-Amazon. You go to a bookstore, even Barnes Noble, which at one point, and they changed this later, they had, I think, 250,000 unique titles in their superstore something like that. It was a huge number. And you go in and say, I need this uh, book from uh, 1990, 1992 that's still in print. Do you have it? And they're like, oh, and they'd tap, they pull up some kind of weird CD thing. Like, no, we can order. It'll be uh, two or three weeks, and uh, there's a $5, you know, the price is blah, it's full price, and there's a $5 processing thing. We'll call you when it's in, right? So that was the experience for anything but the most popular books that were widely in distribution. And there were short categories, like Barnes & Noble had X 100,000. They could order within a day to three days another X 100,000, which was small. And then the, the largest part of books, the long tail that were very rarely ordered. but Academic books and books that were still in print but were you know not in the front list, they're not the on backlist were hard to get. Amazon's secret sauce was they hired a bunch of people and they had really good computer systems to divvy it out and like so-and-so had uh, all the publishers that began with A, so-and-so d- did Springer for Log because it was a big thing, and so forth. I had this call in January or February of, uh, you're jogging my memory so well, I'm remembering things I haven't talked about in 20 years. Uh, January, February 1997, I get a call from or I call Springer for Log, so U.S. Division, and they have like 12,000 books in print and available in the U.S. And the guy says, because I want to get a direct feed. I'm working with all these publishers to get direct feeds of their stuff so we can be up to date, especially with bibliographic data, reviews, and inter- or, uh, background information, page counts, stuff that we can't always get accurately from distributors and other sources. And he said, God, I don't know who you guys are, but you rose from like nowhere to be like you're in the 95th percentile of, uh, of people who buy from us. And I said six months, we're probably going to be number one or two. He's like, huh. I don't know if that was true. But so we were in this middle of this um, interesting transition where all these book publishers and distributors were not geared up for rapid, the book industry was not that way. You would fax things, you might use some dial-in or weird online system, even in 97, to order books, but it's kind of a... One at a time thing, and you'd have all these this hand book selling, which still goes on to a lesser extent. Book reps travel around; they went to every bookstore, they'd go to the thousands of indies, they'd meet with Barnes Noble and other chains, of which there were, I think, eight or nine at that point at high levels, and they'd be like, "Here's what's coming out." They'd recommend stuff. They'd talk. There'd be this sort of negotiation. They might give them deals. It was this whole. It was it was a marketplace. And if you're an indie bookstore, you might order like, okay, I want 10 of those. You talk to the, the this person directly. They might even take the order down. And they type it into their system, and it's crazy, right? So Amazon marks the change in that because special order books are super lucrative if you're efficient. So if you have a room of 25 people, all they do all day is order books that are special order, and you get an order for a textbook that's $80. Well, if you're Barnes and & Noble and you don't order that very often, between staff time and shipping and whatever you mar- your margin on that might be twenty dollars, maybe a little higher. I don't know, something like that. Amazon margin on that became like forty dollars. You could make fifty percent, forty or fifty percent, and you'd be selling at cover price, right? So Amazon was making bank on special orders, and people kept coming to us. And you'll notice some of the early coverage of Amazon when the publishers started to really take notice. Simon and Schuster's. Chief exec, I think it was said maybe the next year ninety eight. I think he said this. Then he said Amazon has sold one at least one copy of every book in our backlist in the last year, and it's increasing. And that was the thing. So Amazon not only sold the front list, which was less lucrative, and they started in this you know discounting battle with Barnes and Noble, but they made it. They could make money off it before they did the super d- deep you know forty percent off. 20, 30% off, you could still make money. Or 10, 20, 30% off, you could still make money. Mm-hmm. The publishing industry, which you may know, they uh, and I think this has changed a little bit, it used to be all books could be returned in good condition for a full refund. Shipping was free from the publisher but not back for if you ordered above a certain volume, and it wasn't very high. Uh, books were discounted at typically 50 to 55% off cover if ordered in sufficient quantity directly and distributors would would uh, typically offer a forty percent discount off cover for most books, and some books were short discount where you got twenty percent off. These are the more obscure titles. Amazon was ordering all of these books directly from the publishers, and within a very short time, in sufficient quantity to get a free shipping, b fully returnable, which was great, right. and c fifty five percent off. So suddenly, you know, so let's say Barnes and Noble is buying it at twenty off, Amazon is buying it fifty at five off. Makes it easier. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, we can get that to you in three to five days. And Byron Noble says, come back in a couple of weeks. We might have it in. We'll call you. We don't know. So that was a little bit of the secret sauce. And it was a surprising, I mean, when we had 100 people, I think a dozen people were on it. And when it was 200 people in the company, I think two dozen people were on that. And it drove, at that time, there was no drive towards profitability. But it certainly drove revenue. And it drove this experience that every book that was listed, you could get essentially with a click a click even before the one click you'd say yeah i want this and then it would show up within anything from a couple days to you know a couple weeks and there was no hassle so everybody who was interested in books that they couldn't otherwise get easily um now started to turn very large numbers to amazon and we saw it because we could see the order volume for special orders increasing
0: now you're you're exactly right i i mean and this idea that it wasn't that Amazon, was, like, doing commerce on the web wasn't really the thing that excited people. It was this whole long tail being the secret sauce sort of thing. And the ability to, to – it's it's the world that we take for granted now. Like, any title, anything that you want, you should be able mm-hmm. to get it instantaneously. Amazon was that first, aha, this is possible sort of thing.
1: Right, and they had this advantage, which was the big five publishers, which I think are big four now, or is a big six and big five anyway. Well, whatever, the the biggest, you know, let's say – 90% of the new books sold in the country were by a few people. So there is the big head advantage of only having to go to a certain place. So the, the long-tail story is often told that there's an advantage to aggregation, but the advantage is rarely to the person selling. And, uh, and this is a point that I think, I think Chris did put in the long-tail book, because I, I don't know if I pushed it or maybe followed up later, but this is a point I've made is that Amazon makes money selling a million different books. The publishers don't necessarily make money by selling one copy of their book a year to Amazon. I mean, that's great. They're selling a copy they wouldn't have otherwise, but it's better for Amazon than it is for the publisher in some levels. The publisher is getting incremental, but Amazon gets the advantage of aggregation. So in the book industry, the advantage to Amazon was every big publisher had its own long tail, and the long tail was the backlist, and they keep these copies. Sometimes keep them in print, or at least have the back stock available, and eventually, you know, and then eventually remainder stuff. And so what Amazon did is they were able to get because so few publishers dominated the industry. They had the big win of being able to order from the same place, like five places, basically, when they started to do direct and bypass distributors for the big publishers. They go to these, you know, a f- small number of sources and be able to source hundreds of thousands uh, or no, sorry, ten- well, tens of thousands of the most popular books, including the most popular backlist. So they there was a, a long tail and big head within the larger thing that Amazon was doing. So they were able to make profit off that. And then because of the special order system, they were able to make profit off dealing with thousands of smaller publishers. And and then when they got big enough, they could set terms for the publishers and say, look, we're ordering so much from you. No one else is ordering this much. We know it. You should give us better terms. And they could get those. And the publishers were typically happy because at that point, because they were selling stuff they'd never sold before. So, Amazon like mastered multiple long tails, I think, because no one was in place to do it and once they'd once they'd done that, they sort of overcame they were they were they had enough volume and enough margin that it overcame a lot of the friction that had prevented this from happening before
0: let me ask you and and by asking this I'll acknowledge that you probably might not have had you might not have been privy to these sorts of things, but when you were there, did you get a sense that the idea was always to move to everything and that books were just a test case initially?
1: Yeah, sort of. I mean, so I used to go out – This, like, oh, these are not – this is like the humble brag thing. I used to go out to lunch with Jeff all the time, but it's true. <laughs> it's like it was a small company. I knew him. We were sort of buddies. We weren't like good friends or anything. You know, he came over to the house once and so forth, but we weren't like uh, you know, close or anything. But we trusted each other, and he, I sort of – because I came in from another company and I'd – been um i guess this is right i was it wasn't kind i just gave of my time to him when they were starting up and not that he necessarily needed it but he asked for it and so i think there was a little bit of uh like sort of shared like okay well i'm working for you now but um it wasn't you know eventually i started feeling like more like an employee when it got bigger but so i you know i heard a lot of the the plans there, nothing was that secret per se most of the stuff that seemed like it might have been secret was stuff that uh People wouldn't believe that Amazon would ever do. They didn't think they were ever going to succeed, so how would they succeed at another thing? So there were plans. Before I left, there was extensive planning about essentially getting into all, anything that could be shipped, any kind of media that could be shipped, and there, were, I think, forget if the DVD efforts had already launched by then. Um, there was always talk about being able to ship things for other people, if that made sense. So and that turned into a program, you know, both for books and then ultimately everything. Right, right. What's great is I've used I've used Amazon uh, fulfillment by Amazon and uh, their multi channel fulfillment uh, for a book that I did uh, last year uh, for the magazine. And so uh, uh, I've actually gotten the benefit of their really great their their horrible IT side, but really well really great logistics side of, of doing fulfillment. Um, but I don't think, there was never, uh, like web services, I I think is a huge part of what Amazon is going to wind up doing and they do it very well and that was not discussed although we'd hired a guy just before I left who I had long conversations with about, he wanted to figure out how to scale operations and because he knew it was big already, even things like image storage. Like we had, hundreds of megabytes of images stored for book covers and we were doing the math and he's like, well, we need to have terabytes and we can't afford terabytes. So how are we going to do that? Like, what's the scale? It's like, Oh, well, this is a good question. Um, and so they were already having to deal even when I left with scaling computer resources at a level that almost nobody was doing outside of like oil companies, people, or space, like where they were dealing with massive data sets. They were doing stuff. When when I got there, Amazon was running more transac- more transactions per second through their Oracle database than any other customer of Oracle, and it just got worse, right? And so Oracle's kernel for its database was not set up for massive transaction processing. I would argue that Amazon is one of the reasons that Oracle did so well. because Oracle had to fix things to meet Amazon's needs, and and that was not their clientele at the time. Their clientele was much more ponderous. So um, I would say, like, web services, I think the the need to build massive data centers was already on the horizon, but I don't think the web services part. The idea of getting into digital downloads, that was always talked about, but everyone assumed it was really far away, because nothing was legal at that point, and, you know, I was pre-iTunes uh, and all that, too. Um, so uh, I think when I left, I thought... They would expand to become not an everything store, but like a, a really good purveyor of any kind of media thing you wanted in any format, and maybe into some related stuff. But I never got the sense of the scope of what would eventually open it up,
0: to like be. Gar- I, I, garden tools and televisions and so right.
1: Yeah, I sort of because when they got into that, they did it really badly the first time. They hired the guy from Black and Decker, and he, uh, among other things, he was commuting to Boston to be with his kids every week. When he was the president of Amazon, which was revealed at some point after he left, that um, he's great father. He was uh, divorced and uh, great father, but he was flying to the east coast every week while running this startup, which is tricky. And uh, he suggested they hired a bunch of old Walmart people and they opened warehouses and they had to close a bunch of them in the late two thousand or late nineteen uh, nineties, early two thousand, when the crash happened uh, because they weren't ready for what they were doing. Then they went back and built everything out correctly, but they um, they kind of went nuts. Uh, in uh, carrying too many things, the joke about the ba- the you know the box of nails, the fifty pound box of nails that they're selling with like one dollar shipping, and the selling kitty litter and all that. Not the what killed pets.com also was not good for Amazon, um, and it took them a long time I think until you know a few years after the dot com crash to figure out how they could actually do that stuff efficiently because they would wasted so much money, and they could have been cleverer. they didn't need to climb that growth curve, because it wasn't profitable, and it ultimately set them back years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, but I would say, I don't think, I don't remember Jeff even talking about it at those days. I mean, he said, the thing I recall is in 96, I guess, uh, you know, I that an orientation, I think, sitting in for customer service people, and he's talking about the future, and he had said something in the order, you know, by 2001, we're going to have, you know, 8,000 employees, and we'll be selling, you know, would be a billion-dollar company or something. I mean, it was some range like that. I was like, yeah, it seems plausible. Like, we're, the rate of growth and everything that's going on, this all seems reasonable, but it was all still centered around, I would say, media, whether it might be digital in the future or not.
0: Um, I I had heard, or I thought I had heard, and then I was unable to find it in my research, that you said when you left, you felt like you left because you thought that Amazon was a sinking ship. <laughs> and and, uh, sinking not stinking sinking right sinking and and, uh and what 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 was what was the experience at the time that made you feel that way and obviously it probably was but they turned the ship around but what what was going on that that made you feel that way
1: well uh i felt like things were sort of coming unhinged so we had the um i was good friends with the uh, They'd hired Rhodes Scholars by the score. They hired them whenever they could. Uh, They had this problem, which was Amazon had the not-invented-here problem, and... They had the, we don't care about your experience problem, and um, we're just going to hire smart people problem, which persists in Silicon Valley and other companies to this day, although a little less, I think. They hired people they thought were smart and capable and flexible, and they didn't hire people with any experience, and so they would recapitulate the problems of industries, um, and they would approach things from the standpoint of what people knew as opposed to what was probably the best course. And so there was a lot of, it wasn't arrogance, but it was a lot of, um, you know, so Scott Lipsky uh, the guy I worked for, he came from Barnes Noble. Uh, he was the, was the CTO of Barnes Noble College and Textbook Division, which was a huge part of Barnes Noble. And he knew a bazillion things, and literally could not get any of the stuff he knew built into what we were doing, which was crazy. He at one point, they—you've uh, probably heard that the early uh, customer system was a—you un- had to learn Unix, right, so you had to learn right. some Unix and like Emacs or something to answer customer support mail. Well, Scott in a weekend built a Visual Basic front end that would actually be a totally um, GUI-operated thing, and he was told that they would never deploy that. <laughs> it would have allowed no training. You basically could have sat down and started doing it. You'd just train on what emails are mm-hmm. appropriate and be monitored for that. And they're like, no, no, no. We only want people who are smart enough because we want to bring these people up and, you know, th- th- we, this is our culture. Everyone comes it's, it's ridiculous. You can't scale on that. So that attitude was pervasive. Jeff being involved in hiring meetings was absurd. It was starting to taper off, but, I mean, really, for low-level positions, it was a waste of his time. He was on the road because they were working towards the IPO, so he's doing the roadshow. Um, we were having more and more technical problems. We couldn't scale. The Oracle kernel was getting overwhelmed. We had people sleeping in the office, some of the programmers, um, because to get work done. Uh, we couldn't get orders uh, into the, the distributor systems as fast as we were getting them, which was problematic and was getting worse. Uh, I felt like they'd made some bad, I don't want to name names, they made some bad <laughs> hires or higher levels, uh, several of whom left within a year or a little bit longer, and I was very unhappy I didn't want a promotion. I wasn't of the level, I didn't have business or other experience. I was very happy as like a manager reporting to a VP. I was very happy with my position. Um, I was unable to get the staff I needed. We were falling behind in things. They were resistant to supporting. Um, There was a big split between hourly and salaried workers. And I was fighting hard on behalf of my staff. Eventually, um, one of the things I count as a giant accomplishment is I and a few other people managed to, not exactly shame, but force the management to give hourly workers a stock grant. They didn't get a stock grant, you know, and, they, and so that meant literally for some of those people that turned into hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, I know people who bought houses because of that, mm-hmm. and it's like I will take, you know, my 5% credit of being one of the voices saying this is unfair and unreasonable to these people because the difference between someone here is making, you know, $10 an hour working for me and me is not, There's no, that's just, it's like discrimination, practically. Um, So that was going on. I wasn't happy the warehouse was not OSHA compliant. Um, I was not happy with how the warehouses were won. It's like this, I had lost my confidence. And so the big thing that happened, though, I think the one that put me over was two things. One was um, I had led, Jeff had asked me to expand the catalog. And so I did this whole thing getting information from the Library of Congress, and we integrated it into the database. It's a big project. And I was dispirited after it because I could not get Despite being given direct authority by Jeff on this project, despite his backing, I could not get the various silos to do what I needed to do because they were all overwhelmed with other things. Or well, they said, no, nah, we're not going to do that. It's not important to us. I'm like, supporting to Jeff? They're like, yeah, we don't care. And he was on the road and whatever. So eventually another person who is part of this, um, I want to say it wasn't a cabal. He was, he was great. He was a super competent guy, but he was part of this group of college friends. he I forget who he got hired in. He was fantastic, and he took it over. And I was delighted. And he managed, took him a while to get everything in place, but he managed to get it all all going. But I felt like that was a black cloud over me. Like, I didn't want to stay there after that, and I didn't feel like there was any room for advancement. I felt I would get pushed down lower and lower and have less and less interesting things to do. And simultaneously, I met the woman who I've now been married to and been with for, uh since 1997. And um, I realized there was not enough time to have a startup job and develop a relationship with someone who I was already in love with. So I thought, you know, this is it. There's no room at this company. I don't want to work this hard anymore for what I'm getting. I don't care about the stock. I'm in love, and I'm sick of it. And I am out of here. I'm gonna pull the. I have two bottles of beer and pull the ripcord and slide down the evacuation slide. So it wasn't, it wasn't that extreme. It mm. was. Uh, it was more like. Um, and then you know, and in fact, obvious. And the other thing is. My boss Scott, he is—he was also not that happy. I find later because he left exactly on his one-year anniversary, like three months later. And he tried to talk me into staying, but I was not happy working for him because I felt like he was not happy with the authority he had at that point. He was sort of getting frozen out too, so it was time to go. And um, and I uh, I left with uh, you know friends with everybody and at some point jeff was on the road he called and said i bet there's no way i can talk you out of this right and i said no i think i'm ready to move on and i'm worn out and this isn't the place he's like that's great and thanks you know sort of essentially thanks for being here and i'm like it was terrific and i have no regrets and whatever so then i left and i left thinking that i was concerned and i you know i passed on, i think i probably wrote him a memo i wrote people memos before we left mm-hmm. like is this company going to be standing in a month or two months and i was highly dubious and i wouldn't have stayed if i was confident i, I, I was going to leave anyway but I also thought, I don't need to be here in the wreckage. I want to get my last paycheck. I don't want to be associated with the company that goes down. But I was also totally ready to go. And after I left, like, they hired a ton of programmers. They revamped stuff. They changed things. Some people left who were obstructionists. They hired in some new great people, some of whom I think were there for 15 years or longer. And, um, and they turned the ship around. And they managed to get everything settled and, and become the company they are today. So... In the end, I have no regrets. Like, And I, I say this often. My wife has this joke. She's like, I know exactly how much I'm worth to you because <laughs> you walked away. I'd invest. And I walked yeah. away from probably – if I'd stayed five years, I probably could have you know, sold the stock for 5 to $10 million if I'd stayed the whole time. But I'd say a year, it might have been a couple million bucks. And I, I, don't, care. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I don't care. I'm glad I left when I did. Uh, I'm glad I'm still with my partner. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sorry that Amazon did well. I'm glad they did. I wish they'd be less evil these days, but I'm not sorry that they uh, – that they became a going concern and, and did what they did.
0: Well, you know, they, um, the, the question I would have would be, you know, they had a near death experience after the bubble burst as well. So, yeah. you know, but, but they have succeeded wildly successful in retrospect. This is sort of a wide open question, but in retrospect, was there anything that you could see either in Jeff or in the company and the culture and the people that you could say, you know what, I bet that's why they have succeeded.
1: Uh, he is, Um, let's see, so the thing about Jeff, when I worked with him and knew him, and I, I feel like he's, I feel like he's changed some, like I feel, I'll I'll start at the far end, which is, I feel like there's a fundamental unkindness about Amazon now that does not, I don't associate with him, certainly not with, with Mackenzie, who set some of the culture in the beginning, his wife, uh, or some of the really early people who are tr- wonderful, interesting, varied people, oh my God, what an incredible group of people they did get together, though, I mean, it was, you know, it was like college plus uh, in terms of like the creative thinking and intelligence and everything else. Um, I feel like there's an unkindness about Amazon as as the company's gotten bigger, that they make decisions that are just unnecessarily cruel to people, that are unnecessarily aggressive. And it must be set from the top. And it makes me feel bad because I don't think he was that person. What I, I thought about him back then is that he had a remarkable ability to contain A huge number of different things in his mind at once and proceed towards many goals simultaneously without losing sight of the details. And that hung him up in the sense that he stayed involved for too long with the details. But he was right. He wasn't a micromanager who drove you nuts because he was always wrong or changing things. He was a micromanager who you're like, oh, you shouldn't be involved in this, but what you're doing is actually a good decision. We weren't all trained in making decisions as well as he was. And, you know, and eventually he had to let go with some of that and maybe with better or worse results. I'm not sure that the culture in those days encouraged people to make the right kinds of decisions on their own because it was such a, it was such a hassle and he did intervene a lot. I mean, he and I spent weeks, not, you know, 120 hours, like, but we spent, we spent weeks going back and forth over the language that it would explain different shipping statuses about books that were in stock, uh, like what we called in stock because we did not have – we only had a little bit in the warehouse at that time. We are stocking very little uh, until after I left. Um, So it was what could be shipped from which warehouse, uh, from which distributor, because we knew which warehouses things were in and where they were going to wind up from. Uh, And uh, what we were calling uh, hard-to-find books was my term for what's in the industry is called um, out-of-print, or OOP, O-O-P. And we decided to call them hard-to-find because it was a mixture of books that weren't in distributor catalogs but might or might not have been in print, but we knew we'd have to work harder for them. So we spent... I say weeks, and I would draft something. He'd look at it. He'd be out of town. He'd come back. He'd look at that. We'd make changes, and I was very satisfied. The final language was good, and I think it was up on the site for years. My code ran for years to generate the cross-reference stuff, um, and that was fun <laughs> to see after the fact. But uh, I think uh, I think Jeff just had a remarkable big picture, little picture ability, and I think I got to say I think he was terrible at hiring at one level and good at another. So he hired some the mix of people. Hired a lot of really great people and some really people who were not aligned to his interests, let's say. People who may be great in other contexts. Um, There was one person hired. I don't want to give details because then I would get myself in trouble. Uh, But one person hired who, um, not after I was there for a while, was was, uh, left of her own record or his own record at that point. And um, uh, it was really clear for months that it wasn't a good fit. And it, it was just hard Microsoft has this problem too. It used to in the past of getting rid of people who just aren't the right person. Either they're incompetent or they don't, they're not doing their job. You know, they're not doing the job that needs to be done and they had a great difficulty with it. And I think Amazon had that problem too. So I feel like it's growth oddly was hampered by, um, bringing in the wrong people and listening to them for too long. And, you know, Mike Daisy's whole, uh, 21 dog years. Doing yeah. time. at Amazon.com. his whole book and, um, and show was a bit about the MBAification of Amazon, where people came in and made terrible, terrible decisions for reasons that didn't make sense. And all those decisions eventually worked out poorly. And, uh, you know, so it wasn't good. So I I think they had to have some kind of coming to Jesus moment after the dot-com crash. And since then, despite the issues with not being able to produce a consistent profit, um, they certainly have operationally generally done very well. And, um, you know again, my problem with Amazon today is i don't i think the the origins of not being not caring about warehouse workers and hourly people when I was there of treating them poorly, I would say in relative terms relative to how they should be treated as human beings and workers. I think I see that as a through line. I think the fact that they were willing to run warehouses in the summer without air conditioning until they got so many complaints and and maybe even fines. I don't know. I don't think I find. And then they're finally like, "Oh, we have air conditioning everywhere." I'm like, "Well, how many years were you running those where it's 101 degrees in there?" Why the the process you read about where they essentially grind their warehouse workers into dust, which would never be allowed in Europe. And there's actually lawsuits in Europe about what Amazon's doing relative to unions and things. Like I I find that a through line, and it's unfortunate um, because uh, uh, they should be better than that. You know. And they do should you, be able do
0: you mean that. fundamentally mean it bleeding into now their business practices in terms of entering markets and behaving in markets as well.
1: I think so. I don't I um I'm disappointed. Like I uh, believe that capitalism is the best system we've had so far for the least misery. And it's not a great system for it, and maybe socialism is better. So I mean, this is guess in a political thought, but like I don't know, like I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm confident about any of this, but I guess I, I feel like when I look at every other system in the world, probably capitalism is the is the least bad, um, and so I don't come at the standpoint that says um, uh, companies shouldn't make money, they shouldn't be aggressive, but I think so. Costco is the great example here in Seattle. We've got Costco, and we've got Amazon. Costco has. Treated its workers well from its founding. It, um, it the the management is not overpaid. They really strive for actual uh, value for their shareholders and for their customers, and they seem to achieve it. They're very well regarded. They offered health care early on to. People weren't working very many hours. Like, they're sort of an anti-Walmart or way Walmart at least used to be. It's changed a little bit. Um, Costco, uh, I think they resisted unionization is the only thing you could say about them. But they were sort of like a, a very good player, and it's for the kind of job it is. It's a very good job. And Amazon, I feel like, is almost on the other side where, like, their interest seems to be entirely um, focused at this point into winning at all costs, into scorching the earth. Making sure there's no room for competitors, and not even being kind to suppliers and so forth. The whole author thing, where they're trying to persuade authors that their publishers are against them, and playing different, you know, trying to get readers to be involved in like fighting a battle that's really about, you know, profit margins and whatever that should be fought behind closed doors and worked out. You know, not selling the books, hashtag's books, like all this stuff. It's bullying, and it doesn't further their interest. It certainly did not make them more money in the long term. It's not a good strategy for them to continue to capture. Uh, what they need to as a company is my take. I mean, they, it's not that even when they win, I feel like they lose, right? It's one thing when you're fighting Barnes Noble, which is, was kind of a, had a lot of issues. And you could say Barnes Noble wasn't evil, but they were, I don't know, they were aggressive about pricing and whatever. There are all kinds of things Barnes Noble did. And they used to be sort of the bad guys, right? A right. big
0: change store that right. was. Whatever the, and so the big say, bad you've got mail chain store that uh, killed Meg Ryan's little bookshop and things like that yeah
1: yeah the good news is that independent bookstores apparently are they're not I don't know if they're on the rise but they sort of hit they did not all go to business right they hit a low point and I think it stayed there and grown a bit um, because people want a genuine experience and bookstores transformed um, it's possible Amazon is a bubble in terms of media and eventually it will be a digital media and web services company and ship very little physical items but um, it's hard to know but uh, I just uh, I it's not that I expect companies to be kind it's that I expect them I expect a company like Amazon with an orientation towards customers and their you know their stated goal to serve their customers should be able to treat their workers res- with respect and dignity at every level and I think there was always a you know I'm gonna say there was an elitism I'm a Yale graduate and I wasn't hired so to Yale though I don't think it hurt that's for sure. Um, and uh, Jeff was a print, you know, went to Princeton. There were a lot of Ivys, um, people at all levels there, and there definitely was that that split between hourly and salary was part of it. There was a lot of, um, I want to say, putting one's nose in the air about things about pedigree and degrees and companies worked for, and it wasn't oppressive because I was on the top side of it, I think. Um, but I feel like. That is still that kind of thing that workers are disposable and interchangeable Amazon is putting more robots for efficiency into their warehouse which they should absolutely should but I think I think they the way they treat workers makes me feel like they think robots and people are the same thing. Well you know and I, it bothers me Carmax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you because at Carmax we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. you should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying
0: should be. Just one more question, um, it, because you made me think of it. I, When I started working on, on the Amazon end of this, I I I was operating on this basic assumption that I feel like you know most um, investors have been operating on that. Essentially, the reason that, that that Amazon has been able to get away without making profits for all these years is that everyone is convinced they're the second coming of Walmart, and Walmart <laughs> like Microsoft was that one big stock that got away. That man, if you had just gotten in early on, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and so I read you know the, the Sam Walton book. I read books on Sam Walton and stuff because and, I was I was hunting for these little. These these nuggets that were like, okay, I can see where Jeff got this idea from Sam and things like that. But so you saying that about the workers and things like that, because obviously that Walmart's also a company that's accused of being the same thing. And I realize you might not be qualified to even answer this and it's wide open. But do you feel like maybe that that is maybe culturally or as a business model, something that is something that maybe he took from Walmart?
1: I think it's accidental, I, I have to say, because I never saw Jeff behave in any way, and nor really any of the people who are directly responsible to him behave in any way that implied that workers were different classes or elitism or anything like that. But I, I think it's a lack of caring about it. It's a, lack of, um, it's a lack of thinking about that part of the situation. I think if Jeff spent a month working in one of his warehouses, he would be extremely ill you know, like I think he would not actually be able to do it, at, do it. I, and I don't mean that like he's a weak person, but I mean like, it, I think most people, I don't understand, I don't understand how people can work in the warehouses based on multiple reports, not, you know, some people getting jobs and writing about it for, for publications and just the reports that come out in Glassdoor, you can read about it, things like that, is I just think Amazon has this driven culture. They pretend they're a startup still and they, they treat, maybe that's the crux of it, is they believe that everyone should be in and on their side within the company, even if they don't get the benefits. So, you know, managers in the warehouses are getting stock and other stuff and, and bonuses, and the people who work for them are getting crap all. They're getting their hourly wage, which isn't great. And I just feel like there's a way where you could be treating people. You could not that everyone. Not, I mean, yes, a warehouse needs to have performance goals. They need to be efficient. They need to have good workers. But there's also this loyalty that I feel is absent. people get churned up and, and fired when they stop meeting their goals, you know, when they've sort of when they've worn them out. And I would love to know what the multi-year employment history is of people. Uh, the, the histogram is probably fascinating for Amazon warehouses. But I don't think it's intentional. I don't think. Um, Jeff is reported to be a libertarian. I never heard him talk anything about his political ideas uh, when I was around him. Um, and libertarianism doesn't mean you're cruel. It means that everyone's making their own choices, right? And so everyone's their own actor. I mean, there's a little Anne Rand in there too, I'm sure. But it's um, it's if you're making your if you're informed party with your own volition and agency, making your own choices, then you've made the choice in your life that's led you to having a warehouse job. So this is your problem, right? And I feel like that comes through a bit. Um, maybe I'm misguided but I don't think that it was an emulation of Walmart I think it and I don't think there's a specific idea they needed a lot of low paid workers to make their system go I just think it's they just they just feel like they're gonna do what makes sense for the business and um, but I would say that like I would be like could Jeff Bezos work a month in his warehouse in like the Kentucky one that was not air conditioned I don't know I don't know if he pulled up. You know, this is the problem, the farmhand problem. We have this in Washington State is that there's this thing about, um, you hear this all the time, is that the people who come up, the campesinos and so forth who come up, um, whether they're legal or not, they, uh, they will work as hard as they need to work because that's what they do and that's what they have to do in order to stay alive and, and take for the care of their family. And the farmers will talk about, ranchers or whatever, they'll talk about, um, you know, we hired people who are from here who are, you know, they've done farm work before and they last a half a day and they go home. You know, even no matter what wage we're paying, when they can't get the people they need because of immigration crackdowns or whatever, and I feel like there's a little bit of that. Like, well, if people are capable of working that hard, then we'll just find more and more people who can, and we're not going to worry about what the impact is on them because eventually they won't be our employee anymore, and it's not our problem. That's kind of harsh, but it's true. Yeah, <laughs> um, I have a bu- I have a beautiful story I could tell though that would excellent. cheer you up. Excellent, right? excellent. Well, I think it's beautiful. It has aspects of sadness in it though. Well, there's a death in it, but I should tell it anyway. So. Before I left Amazon, I'd gotten this out-of-print book program started, and we needed to check in our systems because we didn't have a way to record and stock prices for things that were not new books being sold through distributors and other sources. So we did one test. at a housemate at the time, my, my uh, landlord, who has uh, the housemate, um, he'd sold the house to me and moved on. I'd gotten another roommate in. And um, she said, oh, there's this book I've always loved, and I, can't, I haven't been able to find a copy of it. It's called uh, Fisher's Hornpipe. It's by Todd McEwen. Um, I'd love to get a copy of that. And it came out, i looking it up, it came out March 1983. And this is not, you know, so it's a hard to find book. I think it was even out of print at that point. So, uh, so I plugged that in the system and the very first book ordered at Amazon as, an, as a used or out of print book was Fisher's Hornpipe. So the sad part is I left, I quit my job at Amazon in April of 97. And I think my last day was May 2nd. And I think it was the next night that roommate died. She was killed in a, um, in a motorcycle accident and um and that you know it's a rough time for everybody involved i didn't know her as well as some of my friends she was a friend of a friend and uh um but i had this sort of memory of like i, I kept the book <laughs> i think her family gave it to me so i have fisher's warrant somewhere in the house um but uh uh made me appreciate even more the decision i'd made that i was going to go and do something more meaningful with my life and not be unhappy and and um stay with this person i'd met and uh and like that so that's the that's the first that's the uh first out of print book story Hmm. for amazon
0: well uh glenn thank you for uh, not only remembering all that great amazon stuff but being willing to do some uh deep thinking about it too
1: thank you very much you've not i i some of these things i haven't thought about in 20 years now i'll remember everything it'll be like recovered my recovered memories
0: (laughs) well thanks again thank you If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at net pod. And my personal Twitter is at Brian MCC. Thanks for listening.
1: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers.